Welcome to the Sendcast. My name is Dale Pickles and I'm the host of the Sendcast and the managing director of B Squared. If you are a new listener, then welcome to the Sendcast. The aim of the Sendcast is simple. We want to reach lots of people and help you all learn more about special educational needs and disability. The main focus of the podcast is to increase the knowledge of teachers in schools. But the podcast supports all professionals working with children and young people with SEND and it benefits parents and carers of all children. In this episode, we're discussing boredom and the importance of boredom. Hopefully you won't feel bored listening to this podcast, but it will make you think about boredom. I'll be discussing boredom with my, one of my regular guests, Finton O'Regan. Finton has been a head teacher, a lecturer for Leicester University, and now works as a trainer and consultant for schools and school support systems. The Sendcast is created and produced by us here at B Squared. We are the assessment people. We help show the small steps of progress pupils with SEND make. We help schools show progress for a wide range of abilities and ages. If you're a primary school struggling to show progress or struggling to identify where a pupil isn't making progress, we can help. But did you know you can use B-squared assessment for just more than just SEN pupils? You can now assess all pupils in one system, saving you time and money and simplifying the whole assessment process. Visit the B-squared website or click on the meeting link in the show notes to book a meeting with me to take you through our assessment software. Let's get on with the podcast. On this week's show, we are discussing boredom because it is interesting and it is also vital. My boring guest this week is Finton O'Regan. Finton is a trainer and consultant for schools and school support systems, including social services, health, police, and foster carers. And before this, he's worked with another number of organizations like NASEN, Institute of Education, Leicester University, the UK ADHD Network, and European ADHD Alliance. And before all of this, he was a head teacher of a specialist school for students with ADHD, ASD, and OD, and any other acronym you can think of. Welcome to the show, Finton. Oh, sorry, Dale, what were you talking about? Oh. Um, recording podcasts with you, Finton, is anything but boring. And with busy lives, we can often rush from one thing to another. But sometimes we do get bored. Sometimes our mind wanders. What is going on isn't interesting. It doesn't occupy our minds. And it happens for many reasons. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those terms which I think I've been interested in for a long time because I do see this as being a real difficulty in some children engaging in a school system. You get some people who just seemingly sit there and drift through and get on with it. But a lot of children actively are non-stimulated, say they're bored, probably are truly bored. And it seems to me that if you can do boredom, you kind of get through school. It's the ones who react to boredom that seem to get told off for moving and fidgeting and doing all that sort of stuff, then they seem to, you know, struggle because of that. So I think boredom is definitely the, you know, the enemy of learning. And it's the cause, I think, of lots of behavior issues, because some people, when they are bored, will react accordingly and tell you they are. And in a way, it should be seen as an alert system that what you're doing isn't working for everybody. You said that boredom is the enemy of learning. I would say it's the enemy of the person 
trying to teach you that thing you find boring. Because generally, if you're interested in something, you're generally not going to get bored by it. You like your cricket. You mentioned at least once per podcast. If we talk cricket, Finton's not going to be bored. Yeah, because he's into that thing. So that's one of the things when we talk about schools, it is children are teaching a curriculum prescribed by a government, which is boring. Not everyone may agree with that. The person who teaches English will get very upset that I've just called Romeo and Juliet boring. The person in history who teaches that crop rotation in Anglo-Saxon Britain will be offended that I've just called that boring. Everyone will get offended because they're especially someone which they love, we've just said is boring. And why are they getting offended, Finton? Yeah, well, I think they're getting offended because we take boredom very personally. I think, you know, a lot of people don't like the word. They associate it with, you know, the fact that it's someone else's responsibility to be interested when they are speaking about said subject or said thing that they're interested in. And as teachers, it's not as much an ego thing, but it's the fact that, as you've said, particularly your stimulator, you're interested in your subject, you expect everyone else to have an interest in it. Maybe not the same interest as you, but when someone, you know, really seems not to be involved at all, I think you take it personally. And as opposed to see it for what it is, it's a message. That person is just not being stimulated. And it might not even be, not be the subject matter. It, it could also be the way in which it's delivered. You know, there's a lot of subjects that, I've, that are, I'm told are more popular for certain children with SEN. That can be true in some cases, but there's also some subjects that I've been told aren't accessible for children that have dyslexia and ADHD because an ASC, because they're too abstract or it's too heavy with literacy or there's too much writing or there's too much listening. It's not always the case. It, it is not so much always a subject. It's the way in which it's being delivered. But what I would say is don't take boredom personally. If someone is bored, the boy, it's a state. You can't say to someone who's, you can't say to someone who's bored, be more interested. It doesn't work that way. It's like saying to someone who's angry, don't be angry. You've got to understand, number one, why they're angry and do something about it so they are less angry. So I think we've just not got to take this so personally, number one. And people say to me, well, I'm not boring. And, but if someone finds you boring, you are to them. Maybe I'm boring you now. But the bottom line is it's a real issue that we do need to be at least aware of in order to negotiate it, to support people, to be stimulated by what they aren't at this point. I think it's also the other thing just to think about with boredom is we all have good days and bad days. We have things going on, which means you don't engage in things. So perhaps you are interested in it, but something else is going on and you're just not putting that effort in. It's, it's kind of today that level of interest needs to be a bit higher to get me to engage. And because of other things going on, that's the thing is you might be the lesson after PE where they've just had a great football match. Whatever you do in that lesson, it's probably going to be quite boring compared to what they've just come from. So there's, I think there's different levels and different reasons for a child to be bored. And as Hinton said, it's not always about, it's, generally it's not about the person who's, it's not about the person. It could be about the topic. And we've also got to remember as adults, we choose generally what we want to do. Children don't have that choice. As you said, the, you know, the, I always mention at least cricket in one thing, and I'll probably always mention ADHD in one talk as well. And this is where ADHD does differ a little bit from other SEN terms, because people will say 
you, you're, you, if you can't read in English, you can't access the, you know, can't focus on the words, you can't see the words because they are, they're obscured to you or you can't distinguish them. You won't be able to necessarily read, you know, you won't, you're not going to read that same word in history. It's not, or with ADHD, people will say he can do it when he wants to. So people will take it very personally. They can say, oh, in certain places he's focused all the time, in other places he's not. He can do it when he wants to. It's not the case. It's when he's interested in what he's doing. He's stimulated by what he's doing, who he's doing it with. You'll get a different reaction. Putting it simply, children with ADHD have a low threshold of boredom. It's very hard to get that across because, as I said before, people take it personally and they just say, well, he's just choosing to be bored and he's choosing to be interested. It doesn't work that way. No. People need some people need stimulation more than others some people don't need the same amount of stimulation in order they dig in they get through i find it interesting because when i was reading your notes on this it's boredom when there's nothing going on in your head type thing and literally whatever you're doing literally it's like i've got nothing going on here whereas i have times where externally i probably look completely bored and you'd look at me there's absolutely nothing going on with me but my head is doing stuff. I'm thinking about things. I'm processing what happened or things like that. And we talk about children coming home and having to go to their room and lie down. And you might walk in and they're doing nothing. And you could say they're bored externally. And I remember being back in, in school and I remember daydreaming because it was boring. I wasn't sitting there going, I'm bored. And I might have been one of those people who could do boring because when I was nothing going on internally, externally, I found my own interest internally and was thinking about later on in that day or thinking about other stuff. And I could just sit there in reality, bored out of my mind, but finding my own thing to do in my head. Yeah. I mean, just turning this around, you, you weren't so much, you were perceived as being bored, but you were self-stimulating. Yeah. And I think, you know, that may be the better way of doing this. I mean, I, you know, I had, I mean, I wrote three papers on boredom. Get them on my website. I was called, it's called The Art of Boredom. And, and I put them on LinkedIn and a good friend of mine who reads my articles liked each of my articles. And I said, I said, well, what do you think about them? He says, well, I didn't read them, he said. <laughs> Because and he liked each one of them because he said they sounded boring. So we're somewhere, but so maybe the way is to look at it is we need to talk about more about stimulation. Because stimulation is a much more exciting way of saying yes. of being the opposite from boredom, isn't it? We all like stimulation. That's truly what we're looking at. We're looking at but we need to accept the fact that some people therefore aren't stimulated by the same sort of things that others are. And we need to identify that in terms of something for us to work with and not run away from them. Definitely. In England, we've got the new engagement model. And have you followed the engagement model, Finton? <sighs> Again, sorry, I'm not. Now, we'll stop that now. But no, I haven't, Dale. But tell so me the engagement model came in initially with a Rochford review in 2016, and it was based on a load of research done by the City Project, which is actually really good research. And it is about the key for learning for people to be successful in their learning is engagement, yeah. stimulation, not yeah. being bored. Yeah. And they did a load of research and the research actually applied to every situation, every learning, listening to this podcast, going into your university lecture, a three-year-old sitting on mat listening to their teacher. It's the same levels of engagement, but things will change. And they looked at responsiveness, curiosity, discovery, anticipation, persistence, initiation, and investigation. The seven areas, and generally, if someone's not engaged, you think about these seven areas. Which ones are they, which ones that they're not doing? 
and it will help you get that higher stimulation. And in that sense, the engagement model works. Mm. However, how the government used it as part of the Roche review and what it's turned into literally doesn't work as an end of key mm. stage thing. But the actual initial work by Barry Carpenter and the seven aspects of engagement is this stimulation is, and again, it's that if I'm, so if I start doing a podcast on binary numbers, mm. Mm. my listening figures will be low. Mm. Mm. And those who do listen will probably get bored. Mm. So I won't do that because I know the engagement wouldn't be there. So I have to plan what we're going to talk about, how we're going to deliver it and things like that and make it more interesting. Cause if it is more interesting, people will listen more and they won't zone out when they're listening to something else. So it's, and that's the whole thing. That stimulation is the same as this engagement. It's the opposite of boredom. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I love the idea of what you said there on the engagement there. I mean, that's a much more positive way of putting it, but I worry, I think seven, seven things is, is just are probably four too many. You know, I think people, I don't say, say that's boring. It's just the fact that it's just too hard to remember how to do them. I mean, as you know, I mentioned before, I think as teachers, and this comes from a, a long conversation I had with someone once about, you know, we do tend to focus on brains. And as I said, I was in this course once and someone said, I don't, I don't teach brains, I teach people. And it got me to think about this issue of teaching people as opposed to brains. And what I kind of drilled it down to is you're really after minds and your mind is different from your brain. Yes, part of your mind incorporates your brain, but I think as teachers, we also need to engage the rest of the body. <laughs> you know, we just need to, you know, your head, your brain should, your body shouldn't just be a vehicle to, to carry your brain around from place to place. It needs to be involved in the process. Now, whether you call that movement, whatever you want to do. And the other thing, of course, to get the mind is you've got to engage the environment. But you've got to, first of all, identify that there's an issue here of boredom or lack of stimulation before you can, first of all, do something about it. Obviously, you can go listen to all of Susie Nyman's podcasts on multi-sensory teaching. But it is that. It is engaging. And again, Finton might go watch a lecture on cricket or he might go to a lecture on ADHD. So Finton has chosen to go and listen to that. And generally, what you're going to have is someone on a platform who is passionate about it. And that passionate shines through, yeah, because they are passionate about that and they go for it. At primary school and secondary school, it's hard to do that because you are a primary teacher who has to be engaged and enthusiastic about every aspect of the curriculum. Yeah. You might really not be great on fronted adverbials, but you've somehow got to be passionate about it and try and shine through. And it's the same as secondary school is you are that history. You are someone who loves history, but you can't go really into the in-depth that you could do if you're at college and uni and really inspire this amazing thing that happens at this point is you've got to bring it down to a much simpler level, but still show. Yeah. It's literally, it'd be literally like Finton explaining the basic rules of cricket to me. He wouldn't be that enthused because this is quite simple for oh, him. Give me an opportunity. I'm sure I could make it. So it is quite challenging to... Deliver a curriculum that isn't yours, that you're not passionate about because the government's telling you to. And I think back to my school days, pre-national curriculum, and I think of my favourite teachers, my favourite topics and things like that, especially at primary school. And generally, it's the topics and subjects which 
the teachers had the most passion for, that they really went for, that made us go for it? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think so. I mean, I think there's a, there's going to be some people here now who will be, you know, sort of saying, well, look, boredom is part of life. You need to sort of get on with it. You need to deal with it. And let's face it, a lot of kids will say, oh, everything is boring. And, you know, and of course, that's not accurate. It's not true. And so therefore, there's a sort of way of dismissing it as just something that the kids will say. And therefore, you know, they need to mature or, you know, or grow, grow, grow up with it and deal with it. But it's something that I think we do need to identify as if we look at it in a very, just a very specific way. If someone is bored, it's a lack of efficiency. It's lack of efficiency in what you are providing. And it's a lack of efficiency in what the provider is receiving. And, you know, and if someone is bored, then their output is going to be different than if they are more stimulated. And so I think it's just something that we need to put into some degree of perspective along with other elements of what we try to do, you know, in terms of performance and in terms of at least addressing the fact that, you know, if there are incidents in your classroom, which are, you know, taking up a lot of time because people are reacting towards what is going on or not going on, then we've got to be saying, well, what can we do different about it? What can we do, do something differently about it? Because if you have an incident of a behavioural incident in the classroom, then it's going to take a lot of time away from what you're trying to do and what you're trying to provide. And everyone, you know, everyone, you know, that, that doesn't benefit everyone. So I'm not saying that people go hitting people or jumping out of their chairs because they're bored. could be other reasons as well. But what will happen is that I will say if I was to go into a class to watch a, a very young Dale, I'd be asked to watch Dale. I might be watching Dale sort of really looking out the window and not necessarily responding. But what generally happens is that when I go to classroom, what I do find is that I'm asked to go and help Dale. But what I end up doing is I end up going into the classroom and I end up focusing on, on Jim and Lucy, who what happens is they're winding up Dale. And they're winding up Dale because what will happen is they wind up, Dale react. He'll be explosive. He'll jump out of his seat. He'll say something to the teacher and the kids will laugh. They are what are called the players. They're the players of the classroom. And what is they wind up the one. So you, you always catch the second one. You don't usually catch the first one. The reason why they're doing that, and they are what I call premeditated. They know what they're doing and do it anyway. Dale might be a bit more impulsive and he reacts. But the reason why they're doing that is because they're bored. All three of them are bored. All three. And the players are the ones that are, you know, are more practised in the art of creating stimulation by which the student that you catch. So boredom isn't just about the ones who you seemingly have the ADHD or have the issue of behavioural problems. It's the players in the classroom who will play them in order to change the scene of which what you're trying to do. Because I was very very good at finding my inward. So I could literally just go, this is boring. I'll find something in my head and daydream off out the window. But those other two children, they can't do that internally. So they were seeking the external yeah. stimulation, stop being bored. Yeah. And again, it goes back to the fact that, you know, we can, we could, this is a subject which in some ways does need to be explored maybe in a more scientific way. But, you know, we could also argue that as a term itself, it is something which has probably led to the discovery of many other things. Because sometimes when people are, we know how most great discoveries are done by accident. They're usually yeah. done by accident, by someone sort of, you know, bored of what they're doing and then sort of finding something else in which to do to distract them from that and then noticing it. 
So that's the key about it. So we could say that boredom, in a way, you could argue, although we're saying we're going to reduce it, we've also got to identify that if someone is bored and they do something to try and avail themselves of stimulation, what they're doing might well be useful. Yes. I think that's the thing. When you think of boredom, you see articles on Facebook. I see a few at the moment. The greatest gift you can give your child is boredom. Mm -hmm. Because... And a lot of it, if you think about the society around us with social media, with phones, it's a very fast-paced world. Mm. It's a very fast-paced. And if we get the social media is even faster. And our children, their brains work differently to us. So I think it's child of our time type thing. They follow those children through. And they did the digital tech and all their predictions, most of them went completely wrong because mm. they they based it on how we would react in that situation, but they grew up differently. Their brains are wired differently because of this stimulus. But the level of stimulus they can deal with and manage and accept and appear to have no negative impact is much higher than ours. As you get older, your stimulation, your maximum stimulation goes down. It's like when you go to park a car, you turn your volume down. You ask mm. everyone to in the car to be quiet as you reverse it. I hadn't thought about that. I do that. <laughs> as you get older, you do more things like that, I never, don't you? I never understood why I did that. Now. It's because it's, it's too stimulated, so you bring it down, so you've got more. But children can cope with more. So they've got their phones going. They might even be messaging while having a face-to-face -face conversation with someone. And that com they could be communicating with 20 different people with various emojis and keeping track of it all. And then they walk into your lesson and it's one person talking at them about one topic which isn't really sparking interest. And that's the challenge. There's not much teachers can do about that. There's not much. When you're competing with that level of stimulation yeah, yeah. coming into your classroom, it's going to be a challenge. And let's face it, I think teaching has improved immeasurably since the days when I was taught and when I first started teaching, some of my colleagues come in, open your books, write this down, you know, an hour later, you're copying it from the board, off you went to the next class. So, you know, and as you said, you know, it's not done that way. We have interactive whiteboards. We have, most people are, if not following the seven elements, they're following two or three different experiences, learning experience each lesson. And, you know, they, you've, you've, You've adapted without sort of thinking about it, but you've adapted to your market. But as you said, you've got your students now who can do multitasks. You know, they can listen at one point and on a phone and watch another screen at the same time. And then we're having to come in and teach them. And I think, you know, we haven't got to just, we haven't got to be completely immersing ourselves and changing what we do based on the fact that technology is fast moving. And it's not to say you have to be an entertainer when you're in the classroom. No as well but there needs to be some degree of i suppose of admittance or like or at least acceptance of the fact that that the, your audience is going to need stimulation possibly in a different way in which you did when you were taught i think that's the key thing isn't it yeah and i think it's you get some people who will go back in my day we only had three channels and you spent most of your summer outside and my response go, would you have done that if you had the internet? You had, you were outside because you only had three channels. And for me, especially on a Saturday, there was kids TV from 6am till about 11. Then it was the ITV chart show. And that was it till Baywatch at half five. So you, from half 11 to half five, you had to go, there was nothing. It was horse racing and golf is what I remember from my childhood and being really bored. So you had to go out. I was bored. 
I found an interest. No one was bored during Baywatch, though, were they? No. Anyway, but that's the thing. So, and I sit there and I realise that by having that boredom, I went and found my interests and I did cycling, I did this, I did that. But children have, and for years we've had 24 hours Cartoon Network, CBBS, BB. We've had, they can literally watch their TV 24 hours a day and it's now down to control by themselves and the family to control actually yeah not sitting all day watching tv is not great but you mean i got so it's, it's just it's it's just a very hard challenge and if you can keep your children away from tech as long as possible like mobile phones for as long as possible till year seven please do if you can keep them off tiktok forever please do but on the flip side of that if you completely keep them off their phones, there is a certain level of social exclusion which goes on. So it gets a very hard place to make your decisions. Yeah, and I think, you know, now all this might sound quite intimidating for people who think, well, I've got to change my whole practice. I've got to sort of revolutionise, you know, all my teaching, my teaching style and my teaching strategies and my teaching technique you don't i just think it's a little bit of tweaking you know like all these things a little bit of tweaking and i think you know if you do that you may well find i mean i was tell a long st story about how when my children were very young my mother-in-law was very lovely and she paid for us all to go off to disneyland in florida so we went over there that my children were twins were five at the time my daughter was seven and we went over and we spent, you know, a lot of money, I think, or her money in the Magic Kingdom and, and doing this and slides and, you know, the, the parades and everything else. When we got back, I remember saying to the children, I said, what was the best thing? What was the best thing on the holiday? And one of the twins, who was five at the time, said the dead frog in the car park. And the other one said, yeah, that was great. He only had one leg, didn't he? He only had one arm and he wanted things... I suppose what I'm saying to you is that you, you, it doesn't have to be the big convoluted stuff that you do. It's just use nature, use different aspects. You know, I mean, I love the fact we've got interactive whiteboards, but I can tell you nothing's more exciting than a child making, having a, you know, a pop out of a test tube when hydrogen goes. And these are children who might have, you know, their own iPods and they have everything else. So I suppose what I'm indicating here is that some practical work in teaching, I think, has somewhat gone away because we've become over-reliant on screens. And I think there's a lot of things we can do which are very simplistic, very cheap, if you like, really. I'm not saying you bring all dead frogs into the classroom, but you know where I'm going, connecting with nature, connecting with those sort of things, I think can really just up the ante. And I think having children there, particularly who do like to move, who aren't good listeners and sitters if you like really not only will they benefit i believe everyone will benefit but going back to your disney trip it all comes down to perspective because as soon as you go to disney and florida you just see pound signs and how much money that costs and how it's a once in a lifetime event and as an adult you might be that going there as an adult that's your first time there mm. you're just going this is amazing they're gonna love this from their point of view it's just a holiday like the rest yeah. It's just until they're older, they won't understand the benefit. They don't have that perspective. My colleague, he went to Cuba on his honeymoon and had a most amazing time. And when his daughters were a bit older, they went back to, and 
And one of them didn't behave too well. She goes, does she not understand that this is a holiday of a lifetime, blah, 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 blah. And I remember going, no, she's five. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, that you're absolutely right. That was the reason that they were too young to appreciate it, the concept of it. At the same time, what I was trying to get across is it's sometimes the simpler things that can oh, yeah. be most beneficial. It's a bit like when they, you know you you have a structured day, you take the kids out to, I don't know, Legoland, whatever. It's great. They'll go on everything. They'll do all that. But... You know, you take them to the beach and it's, and I love the beach because the beach is kind of, it's also, it's kind of theirs, you know, it's, it belongs to them. They haven't, they can touch this. They can do that. It's all free and you get a different experience. And I'm not saying that you take your 15, 16 year olds to the beach and you're going to get that same sort of experience. But what I am saying is that I think there are elements of what we can do and how we teach and the experiences we give them that can just be stimulating in other ways. I'm trying to think of some examples. I've been trying to think the whole time and I've got nothing, but I've done a podcast with someone who talks, and we've talked about kind of bringing the child into the room. Mm. Yeah. So physically they're in the room. Yeah. Mm. But are they mentally in the room with you? Are they mentally set out in the playground? Are they mentally still somewhere on TikTok thinking about that video they just watched or created? It's about bringing them into the room mentally and Mm. kind of properly bringing them in there so they're ready to learn. Mm. Yeah. And that might be, you don't need to change anything about your teaching, Mm. but you just need to make sure they're in the room with you before you start. Yeah, absolutely. And I think to a certain extent, you know, that does come down to a little bit of, you know, style of the person and maybe using technology to do that as well. You know, you can... Maybe you start with the music, maybe start with We Will Rock You by, you know, there's lots of things if you don't feel that you yourself have that style that you can use technology just to make it, as I said, it, it's not every lesson you got like, a, you know, you've got to go between lesson three and four on a wet Wednesday, whatever. But it's just the fact that it's also knowing that route that four might be a difficult class. Maybe that's when you do it. You don't do it period one. You know, you don't, you know, because you know that everyone's generally speaking up for it. But if you've got some children with SEN as well, I always, use, I've used this analogy before, but, you know, say going to school is like swimming 10 lengths a day. If you have SEN, it's like swimming 10 lengths in treacle. So every lesson you've been putting twice as much effort into it. By the time the afternoon comes, you will be, you know, you're going to be struggling. You're going to, you're going to, you're going to need something else to keep you, you know, you'll be exhausted. You'll be tired. Your level of trying to look interested when you're not, so to speak, is going to be, is going to be threatened. So I think it's just having some of those tools or tricks or being alert to the fact sometimes you just need to have a plan B or plan C in order to spark it really. And maybe you don't want to spark it so it flares, but just making sure you've got other, you know, other knowledge you can give clubs in your bag, or whatever, to, yeah. to do something different, to make it more interesting. So I think it's that empathy and perspective. Yeah. So you talk about Disney, but you mentioned Legoland, and I remember the number of times I took my children to Legoland. Money bought lunch there. That's 50 quid gone for four lunches. And then you've been on everything, mm. and you walk past the gift shop, yeah. and you won't allow them in. Yeah, yeah. Cue yeah. 45 minutes of screaming and crying that you're the worst parents ever and they're going to phone Childline. Yeah. The I perspective mean, of, really, how much money have I spent on you? That's my perspective as a parent. But actually their perspective is, everybody, and this is the thing I realised after a while is, we'd go out for a nice day out. We'd buy them something in the gift shop. We'd go for a nice day out if we'd buy them a gift shop. So we kept doing this. Mm. This time we said no. Mm. 
But for them, whenever they had a nice day out, they always bought a memory. Yeah. But we yeah. realised it was costing money, so we wanted to stop this. But I hadn't realised I'd set up a routine in my child's head that if we go out, we get a memory. And I was breaking it. So that was their perspective. Yeah. yeah. So it's that realising what your intentions are, the reasons you're doing it, and what they're seeing are often very different things. Yeah. And I think, you know, I suppose when we're talking about these trips to Disneyland and to Legoland, we know what's the relevance. I suppose what we're... It, it, I suppose what we're saying in a way is that you, that sounds like that's a big investment to actually give them the stimulation that, that we think they need. And I suppose, you know, where that's okay once in a while, I, and it's a bit like when it comes to sorting out or dealing with behavior or, you know, people say, well, if I do all this thing now, I haven't got the time to do it. It's an investment of time because if you don't sort it out at the beginning, then mopping up some of the issues that come as a result of behavior or lack of learning will take a lot more time. I suppose what I'm also saying though is that you don't have to do there isn't a you don't have to do all the really expensive things to stimulate them. No. You can I remember one time I was teaching a science lesson and it was a wet it was a sort of a wet Wednesday afternoon. I used to sort of take them out, maybe it was a double lesson for a for a walk or something, or play basketball, because it was a double lesson. It was like a 45 minute and 90 minute lesson. So that's a bit of a threat on a Wednesday afternoon. And, you know, by the second time, they'd be flagging and everything else. And this particular day as well, whatever I wanted to do the, in the lesson, I couldn't do because something wasn't working or whatever. But because it was a wet and windy day and we were doing something vaguely to do with, I think it was soaps and detergents, whatever. So in the end, I don't know, I just said, right, everyone, get, everyone takes one sock off. And everyone took one sock off and they went outside and then they, they had to drag it through the mud, whatever. And then they came back in and we washed their socks. We washed, they washed their socks and we had like a dryer down the road we could use. So by the time the lesson had finished, we'd washed all the socks and then gone back and explained how detergents work and soap and cleaning the socks. And I will be honest with you, and I've done lots of science lessons over the years, but that's the one that they come back and remind me about when they washed their socks. I'm not saying that's going to be possible in every lesson, every time, but I'm just saying that. And the investment you have in that, your lessons, you know, because then they'll think you never know what's going to come next. You know what I mean? So you they, can draw off that for many other years. To come. So you didn't even really plan that? Completely didn't plan that. Completely didn't plan. I don't know where it came from. Someone said something, mum, someone took their shoe off, whatever. And I said, right, you know, off we go, sock off. And then first of all, they were a bit gingerly about it. And then they loved it. They were washing their own socks. <laughs> and, but yeah. if you literally had stood up, today we're going to wash, it, it, it's, it's, it's the moment, yeah. it's the class, yeah. it's the people, it's what's going on. And I, you say not being expensive, right? you could literally challenge your children to how many times can they fold a piece of paper? Because it's like you can only fold it eight times or something is yeah. the number. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think, it, again, it goes back to that issue of, you know, we have to follow the curriculum, as we say, but, you know, you can go off-piste. Every now and again, you can go off-piste. And I guess what I'm trying to say is that by doing that once in a while, you will definitely reconnect with some students that maybe you hadn't yeah. done. And also, you it may well spark you to do something different, not all the time, but sometimes. I think it will regenerate some of your teaching, and also you will get a different response from your students. You still have to teach them, you know, towards GCSEs. There's still going to be days that have to be done. You know, it's not chalk and talk anymore, of course, but there are going to be days like that. And I think they'll buy into that as long as they know that there's also other days that, that, that won't be like that. 
So there's a local secondary school near us who has moved to 100-minute lessons. Mm. So they now only have three lessons a day. Mm. But in that 100-minute, they don't have breaks. Mm. It is 100 minutes of continuous learning. Mm. That would be hell for me as a child. I look back at my secondary school and literally the only real, the two topics I would have enjoyed doing that for would have been computing and maths mm. and science because we would have done a practical in the double, whenever you did a double, if we had a practical, mm. but not every lesson would be a practical if you're doing mm. it for that long. Mm. And that would be bad, but the thought of doing history for two hours, for hundred minutes or RE is pure hell to me. And I know that I wouldn't have behaved in that classroom. Mm. I mean, I think, you know, it does sound quite a long time. And as you say, it doesn't appear to have those natural, I suppose, other experiences that you would have in a science or in class. I suppose it, it still depends on how that person structures that time. I mean, you know, some of you out there may have come to some of my talks and so you've been sitting in a room with me for like over a hundred minutes. And I hope that during that time, you know, you weren't totally bored, but I suspect what I tried to do was look and read the room and see who was. And then I had some ideas where we did some activities or we did some discussion, or we did some group things that can do that. And I just would hope that whoever is you know, where are the teachers in that, in those hundred lessons, they'll still be reading the room and they will have other techniques or other experiences, be it discussions, be it games, be it, you know, different ways of getting through that period of time. So I think, Dale, yes, you'd have been one of the, one of the students I'd be keeping an eye on. And, but what I would say is that, but having that person in your room who does appear to have a low threshold of boredom is actually an alert system for you. Because for all those ones that you spot, the overt ones, they'll be the covert ones drifting through. We mentioned these before in other ones, the ones that appear to be able to engage, but they're really not. They are covert, call it inattentive, you can call it what you like. They're drifting through and you need to be identifying. If you can't spot them, then by at least having those different experiences, then you'll be drawing them in to, you know, to, to a more, you'll, you'll be maximizing their learning potential more than by not doing it at all. Yeah. And we've got to think about is in the health and safety at work guidance is if you're sitting there doing it at your desk for half an hour, you should have a break every half hour. Correct. Yeah. So why does that should in theory think about your children sitting at desks and if they're writing, we should be thinking of similar things. And then there's concentration spans and things like that. So if you are going to do a hundred minute lesson, you've got to think about these things and you've got to think that, they need to stand up. They need to have. Yeah. So it might be a hundred minutes, but you can do things to keep them engaged. You can do a bit of a silly game halfway through or just go like five minutes, 10 minutes, just chat to your friends. Yeah. I'll go back to this idea of thinking about, you know, whether it's seven experiences, whatever method you're going to use, think about minds versus brains, you know, yeah. and a mind is about the brain, the body and the environment. And I think by addressing that, we will do that. And we go back to this issue of, you know, children being in school versus being an adult and choosing what you do as an adult versus not having to choose what you do when you're a child. And there will be some children who 
like I say, are, are more focused on the long game, but some of them are trying to get through to the end of the lesson, the end of the day. And there's a different rhythm in how they learn. And therefore we just need to identify that we need to have a different rhythm in how we sort of support them during that time. There was a time I went out, it was one of those family meals, you go out and you go as an adult because it's dutiful, it's what's expected of you. So you go and do it and you can make it fun. And I remember just looking at my daughter and it was one of those times where one of my daughters had someone of a similar age and she was occupied. My other daughter didn't. And we were in a restaurant for like two hours. It's one of those family. And you're literally looking at her going, yeah, you're not being rude. There is literally nothing here for you. Not only are we here for two hours, it took us an hour to get here. It's taken, that's four hours of nothing for you. And from, if you tell me you're bored, most parents would go, how dare you, blah, blah, blah. We were at a restaurant when I went, I grew up, we didn't go through. You give all the reasons of why it's nice to you. But again, the perspective isn't there. And I just watched her and I was like, yeah, this, that's not right. So uh, we came home and I talked to her and we got the Kindle app on her phone. I said, I don't want you playing games. Why not read? I'll take your Kindle. And I also bought her a pair of in-the-ear headphones. So if she sat there with one earphone and she could listen to music, because basically it's kind of, look, we've got to do these things. The family want to go, everyone else, and you're kind of bored, but how can I make this more interesting, but in a socially acceptable way? So you're not just sitting there playing games mm. It's you are just sitting there reading and I can actually go, what are you reading? Have a conversation. What are you And it was like, I get it. I can see it from your point of view. Of actually, there is nothing here for me. I'm chatting to my family. I'm seeing all these things. What's here for you? Yeah, we go back. I mean, I think that's a lovely way of putting it. You know, you expect sometimes people to get out of something what you are getting out of it and identifying that some people aren't. I just think that in itself is a really good start to actually you know, it's for you just, when we go back to this issue, some people can sit for longer than other people. Some people can listen for longer than other people. Some people can't. I think it's us about, you know, for me, what we're talking about here is just a form of differentiation. And I think as teachers and practitioners, we just need to be alert to the fact that some people can't do things in the same way as other people can, in the same way some people need a pair of glasses to read, an inhaler to breathe. Some people just need a different experience to get through this particular time. And it goes along with everything else we have to do. And I know that seems like it's a lot of things to be thinking about all at the same time, but I will tell you that if you reduce the boredom of situations, you will reduce a lot of what you are describing as behaviour incidences, because I believe boredom is at the root of a lot of how those things start. Definitely. And just to reiterate, as we come to an end, that if an adult tells another adult you're boring, that's one thing. That is rather rude. Definitely don't do that. Yes, completely wrong. That is personal attack and so on. When a 12-year-old is telling you you're boring, in a school where you're delivering that and they don't want to be a historian or anything. They really don't care about math or anything. They're not telling you you're boring. They're telling you that the education system is boring. They're telling you this, this is boring. They're telling me today you're boring because I've just come back from Euro Disney yesterday on a trip and we're all buzzing and I've come in here and I'm learning about this and I don't see the point of it. That is what they're not saying you are boring. It's you, not a personal attack. Absolutely. It is not about you. Totally true, Adele. It's not about you. It's about them. 
but you know, but what they're feeling is what they're feeling, and you can't just dismiss it and say to them, as I said to you before, well, you shouldn't be bored or be more interested. You've got to be at least taking on on board, not bored, taking on board what it is they're feeling and what they're saying and to be able to react to it. And it might not be that you can react to it there and then, but if it's a pattern that is taking place and if everyone's going to have days where they're going to be more up for things and if it's a pattern that you're seeing over a period of time in the same way that you would address another issue of someone who is not, not maximizing their potential, we need to be doing something about it. And in order to do something about it, you've got to identify what the problem is initially and then react accordingly. Definitely. And it is, it's, if Intam was working for me and I saw that he was incredibly bored a lot of the time, I might say to him, you know, Fintan, perhaps this job isn't for you. Perhaps you need something more fast paced. Perhaps you need to go work here. And you might go, actually, I do. And off you go. But that's not how the education system works. You can't say to that child in history, you don't like history? Well, you know, let's stop it in year seven. No, mm. you, you've still got to go to history for another two odd years, three years, mm. and then you can make your choice. My daughter loved art and she wanted to do art GCSE. She, then she got found out she got told what she had to paint. Well, I don't like being told. I want to paint what I paint. So there, there are things that there's a lack of choice on both parts, but you reach this agreement that the, this has to be taught and you've got to try and be engaged and you you find out how to make that engaging. But then let's just throw ADHD in there again. Yeah, that inattention, yeah? That's not their fault and it's not your fault. It's a a neurobiological difference. Yeah, it's a neurobiological difference and we go back to that area that they need, they have a low threshold of boredom, but they have a hyper-focus when they're interested in what they're doing, who I've said this many times. Essentially, they need stimulation and if we take this to its nth degree, one of the things that we tend to do, which we discussed in another Sendcast recently, is sometimes the option of medication. And if you take it to its nth degree, what you're, what's the, what is the medication they're having, Dale? It's a stimulant. Yeah. It's a stimulant to help them dig in to do the things that other people seemingly can do more, more traditionally. You could argue that if you were to change some of the aspects of the environment or the function of what they're doing, you might avail yourself less of the need for stimulation, for medication, but that's just a sort of saying mild cases. So I think, you know, we, we have certain conditions, I suppose, that we would have to identify, which is basically, which won't be a surprise to your listeners, has been my interest in looking at this area because I've been trying to say for many years that children with ADHD have low threshold of boredom. And I know that people look at me blankly and say, well, you know, well, that's not my fault, but, you know, they need to get on with it type of thing. Well, I'm my view is that, we need to identify it's happening for us to help them get on with it or get through it. But I know we've been, I always want to say something about subjects though, because we have, we, there is this tendency for us to generalize that certain subjects are less. more. And I was in a school the other day where there was a, a young lady who was particularly, how can I say that she was quite, a lot of teachers in the school had some difficulties with her and it was in subjects such as maths and science and even something like, you know, art and which would sometimes be seen as the subjects which would be more applicable to her learning style. And the one lesson that she apparently was like an angel was in history. So, you know, it isn't just the subject, it's the teacher teaching the subject sometimes, which, you know, and history would have been the one subject that you thought she struggled with most because of her literacy skills and things like that. So, 
you know, and, and I met the teacher and I asked him, I said, what is it you do? And he just says, he says, that I just tell stories. <laughs> That's what he said. He just said, tell stories. And so, you know, different styles, different techniques. You have to be yourself. You can't be someone else. But I think, you know, just have some, but just at least identify the fact that, as we've just said before, if someone says they're bored, it's a real feeling for them and you can't dismiss it and you can't say, be more interested. It doesn't work that way. So I was not the greatest child to teach. So if you looked at my reports, I'd probably get the top mark for attainment, highest marks in the class. My effort was probably the least effort in the entire class. Yeah. So you could set any work. I'd half, I literally, reflecting on it as an adult now, I've probably only really paid attention about 20 or 30% of my brain was what's going on. But you, when I was a child, it looks like I wasn't listening. You ask me a question, I'll get it right and more type thing. I would just be that annoying child. But that's the thing is, I got everything right that was asked of me, but it only really took 20, 30% of my mind. The other 70% just sat there doing nothing. So I had to occupy it. So I, I thought about things. I did, however, I doed all that stuff. And that's what those fidget spinners are for. Yeah. Some of these children, it's for some children, they're literally, they're listening to you full capacity. They're on you for other children. The amount of capacity they're using to follow what's going on and the speed of learning isn't as high as others. And they need to kind of, the other part of their brain is going to need something going on here. Come on. And that's where these fidget spinners, these popping things is just something. And sometimes it's also anxiety releasing. But for me, in most learning situations, there are times where it takes my full brain. But even when I go on professional courses and I'm learning Microsoft stuff and doing this full on stuff, I'm not really fully engaged, but I understand it all. Well, I mean, I've been a fan of fiddling or, you know, as I said, for many years. And I think, you know, we were doing quite a good job with that. So the spinners came out and then we went in and then banned all that sort of stuff. And I think it's drifting back in again now. But I think you were sitting there, though, planning uh, while you were in getting questions right. You are planning B squared, weren't you? Even in those days, you knew that you'd probably be planning something that would help people, maybe like yourself, who were struggling in schools at that time, Dale. Maybe you didn't think have the actual thought as such, but somehow you thought, I want to make this different for other people like me when, you know, maybe in the future. Maybe that's what you were thinking about doing. Maybe, but I do find that I analyse and process a lot of stuff. I don't know if that is just because it's the way I am or it's because I had spare capacity and I just ask why a lot to myself and to others. Why? Why are we doing it this way? And the phrase, well, it's the way we've always done it, is literally like, that's bait to me. Because I will just, if you say it to me, I will then try and get you to change. Yeah, I mean, I think that is the, the that's a classic one, isn't it? Of, of you putting your heart and soul into a lesson plan and, and your heart and soul into the delivery of whatever lesson. And this child says to you, well, why do I have to do this? Or what's... Why do I have to do algebra? Where am I going to use this in life? You know, and there's, that is a question sometimes which you think, well, I actually probably don't, you know, and you sort of, you know, the, I suppose like the answer to that is that, you know, you have to say, look, it's not so it's part of the curriculum or don't ask me the question is, I suppose you'd have to be try, quite adaptive and say, you know, it's not so much the, not so much the topic, it's the process in which you're going through to do that. And someone might buy that, but I'm never going to use this. The, the idea is that I think sometimes, you know, you're never going to please all the people all the time. 
But, you know, going off piece a little bit and saying, I'm very wise, you know, I'm a very wise person and I, I can't always transmit all of my explanations at this one time. I'm very tired. You know, you can just be a little bit almost, what's the word, evasive, but at the same time, you, they will usually get it. And even if they're not getting it from the subject, you can sell it in such a way that at least they'll take it from you, that you've got their best interests at heart. In the end of the day, I always say, you know, that I have an approach towards its structure, its flexibility, its rapport relationships, and that will provide the resilience. But rapport is up there really with the most important skill and developing that with your students is crucial. So we did, I think we did war poems. I think we still do war poems, however many years on for me doing it. We're still doing these war poems and all that lot. But I remember doing it going, oh, I don't get, I don't get this. We spent a whole term or two terms on war poems and I never knew the point. Now, if the teacher has just said to me, look, the government says we cover this book, but really what I'm trying to get out of you is these skills. Yeah. I would have gone, yeah. oh, cool. Yeah. yeah. I yeah. can work through that. I can... Yeah, the book, we have no choice over. The government says we have to follow this, but actually these are what we're trying to get out of you. That would help me understand when I'm reading this poem, why am I reading? I'm not reading this for pleasure. I'm not reading this for choice. You're telling me to read it. I'm reading it. And if you tell me why did the character make this? What is the difference between this? Why? What was his? Yeah, if you give me some questions to ask and then interpret that text, I'll be there. And I think as in education, that's one of the things we're now doing. We're, we're hitting the game. So why are we doing this? Whereas it was when I was at school, it was, so what do you think he meant by that? I'm going, what's have a clue? You wrote I, it down. I, I mean, I think the best thing, you know, I have this slide on teaching style in, in, in one of the presentations. And one of the things it says is, you know, every teacher should not just be a teacher, they should be a coach. And I think there's what you just said there is very true because if you're if you're teaching football or whatever, or you're coaching rugby or cricket even, that could be, but I'll go to football this time. And someone is like, well, why am I doing all this running up and down? You know, why can't I be sh- I, I don't, you know, I'm a striker. All I want to do is hit the ball into the goal. Well, yes, that's your job to hit the ball into the goal, but you can't hit the ball into the goal unless you have the, the fitness to get to that spot where you can kick the ball into the goal. And someone will go, oh, yeah, all right then, I'll buy that. And that's exactly the same analogy of what you just yeah. said. It's the skill. It's not just a direct thing you're doing. It's an indirect thing that gets you to avail yourself of that endpoint. And sometimes if you think of, we do a lot of pro and conning in life. Which one should I buy? And when we think of stuff you're doing in history and English, you are pro and conning. If someone told me you're pro and conning, it would have helped me a lot better rather than going, I don't care who Romeo and Juliet are. I really don't care about Shakespeare. So I think what we've come to, isn't it, in, in, as an, in a roundabout way in this, although we might have given the impression that you have to do all of these really expensive sort of things to avail yourself of boredom, it's really not. It's about the experiences. It's about the delivery. It's about explaining. So some people need a better, they need a, a wider explanation than others yeah. about why they need to do something if they perceive it on the surface as not being that stimulating. So I think you've got to stimulate them in different ways. And it might be by, as you say, explaining and showing them that this is skill sets that they're accruing that might not be directly obvious. Well, I like that analogy about that footballer, that striker is, yes, his job is to score goals. But first of all, we have to get the ball. You might have to chase it down. And when you get the ball, 
you want to be one-on-one. So there's a lot of fitness. There's a lot of stuff going on. And actually, yes, your glory moment is scoring that goal. But how many goals do you score a match? One. Yeah. What do you do the rest of the time? I'm running. Right. That's, and it is sometimes you have to point it out and you have to help them understand. As I said, you are a teacher and a coach. Yes. You're a teacher of a subject, but you're a coach of people for life really. And a coach in terms of getting them to access your subject. And some people need a lot more coaching or coaxing than others will do. And no matter what they throw up, whether they say, whether it's a writing issue, we need to help them to address that issue. Whether or not it's a a listening issue, we need to help that issue. Whether it's an issue of fidgeting, you need to help that issue. Or whether it's a degree that they feel that they have a lower boredom threshold. It fits in with all of those other elements and you're a coach. So therefore, this is just another element of of one of the issues you might have to coach in terms of getting the performance. So as adults, we know how we learn. We know I'm great at this. I I can listen to them or I read or I watch or whatever. You're all teaching children who don't know themselves and who are changing and who are finding who they are. So you can't just sit there and go, you've kind of got to work it out for them, which is another challenge on top of everything else. Yeah, exactly. Again, going back to that issue of you know, neurodevelopmental differences and people not being at the same stage as their age, I think it's still such a crucial thing for us to get across. That because you're at a certain age, it's not mean you're at the same stage as the other people in the room. And we have to, we don't get the choice of that in as, as a child, we do as an adult. So, you know, he or she doesn't know why the other people can seemingly look interested. They're not sure, you know, they'll think there's something wrong with them or there's something that, you know, it, it must be a mystery to them. So I think, as you said, I think quite correctly, we need to help them understand themselves as well as us not take it personally when they don't appear to be getting what the others do. And I say appear to be getting because some of those are drifting through too. You're just not seeing it. Yeah. Yes, definitely. I was generally one of those drifted. I hid it and was very good at doing it. So thank you for coming on the show today. I hope you haven't been too bored, Finton. I haven't been. I do sometimes go to sleep though. So obviously I must bore myself really to fall asleep. You kept your eyes open and kept talking while you had your <laughs> kips. That's good. As usual, Finton has given me some links of things I can share. So I'll be putting those in the show notes, which you can find on the website or wherever you listen to the podcast. So thank you for listening to the show. If you haven't subscribed already, please click on that subscribe button. You can follow us on all the social medias on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We are simply the Sendcast. And let's talk about B-squared. So if you are struggling to show progress, if your assessment process is overcomplicated, takes too long, or you want just to want to see what's available, please take a look at the B-squared website or book a free online meeting with me so I can take you through our products. We have a range of assessment products to help all schools show small steps of progress for pupils with SEND. And if you are a school in England still confused by the engagement model, which I did touch on earlier, not sure about the pre-key stage standards or anything else around assessment, please get in contact. You can also find about our online training, our conferences, read our blog, or watch our webinars. It is all on the B-Squared website. And you'll find a link to the website and to book a meeting with me in the show notes as well. And if you want to get in contact with me, please drop me an email. My email address is dale at bsquared.co.uk. So thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of The Sendcast. It's goodbye from Finton. And goodbye from him. I knew we'd do that. I got there first. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye.